Coming up in episode 27, Adam gets to be happy. Sage mistakes vampires for the good guys, and we talk about mistakes. Okay. So mistakes. Speaking of mistakes, I, I forgot the USB dongle and uh, <laughs> talking about all of the complications with a big event we're doing tomorrow. And I, I wouldn't say that's a mistake per se. The forgetting the dongle—that's a mistake. It's the uh, trying to run the inheritance for people is is not a mistake. That's never a mistake. Sweet. Um, Scheduling and timing is, is all sorts of mistakey. Oh, yes. Yeah. Scheduling and timing is always a mistake. If, if we just had more time, everything would be easier. That's right. Somebody get right on that. Yeah. Uh, that would actually solve a lot of our problems. Uh, <laughs> that's our number one mistake. Not enough time. Uh, my number one mistake is, well, you, I, I mostly wanted to talk about mistakes because I've been working on several game designs and uh-huh. looking at the mistakes I've made in those, but also mistakes that you make when you lose track of kind of what your immediate goals are and mm-hmm. mistakes that you make in designs and just mistakes in general. I focus very much on mistakes in play. So I, I think nice. for once we may actually not overlap <laughs> entirely. We will see. What will everyone think of that? Madness. Uh, so, yeah, lead us off. Uh, so my, my number one mistake that came to me this morning was that uh, I'm getting you get married to a mechanism mm-hmm. in design, even when that mechanism no longer actually does anything for you. Yeah. I've got this little programmed racing game where you run into the wall and bad things happen when you run into the wall. But uh, actually writing all the rules for timing and, and where does movement happen and what bad stuff happens is so complex that if I remove that you run into the wall altogether, the game gets way simpler, way better, and all the badness that you could have done is really easy to phrase on the cards themselves. Uh-huh. Like, I need no rules for it. So I cut out, like, three paragraphs of rules, and the game is probably better for it. Yeah. But I, but I got so excited about, oh, yeah, so you're racing, and then you get slammed into the wall by the turn. It's like, no, no, that's, that doesn't really need to be there. There's a little bit of that in Monster Hearts 2, which, which cuts some of the core moves. Oh, yeah. uh, like, that's... Uh, that's a really interesting phase in the development. I, I actually haven't spent as much time with Monster Arts 2 as I would have liked, but um, based on Avery's design tweets, mm-hmm. um, there was this whole process of, of looking over Monster Arts V1 things and saying, actually, that, that isn't really needed. That's, that's something that can be cut. That was a mistake of a sort. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, it's a learning experience. Sure. Like having that mechanic and having it not work uh, is a mistake for a finished product, but it, it isn't a mistake to have been through that stage of design necessarily. It's a mistake to spend longer than necessary before realizing it can be cut. Like we had this, uh, I had this big long discussion at breakfast with Gary about, oh well, we can solve it like this, or maybe we could solve it like this, or here's how we can draw the lines on the track cards so that it makes this a little bit more obvious. But then how do we do this? And it's like, well, if we cut out this one wart. It just all works. Mm-hmm. E- everything is simple. Everything is easy. I, I'm having a similar thing in Dreams of Darkness where uh, I was really married to this idea that, okay, you go through the deck once, and when you hit the end of the deck, that's the end of the game. And it's like, well, that has a whole bunch of badness. The 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 GM has to keep the state of the deck uh, just always. And mm-hmm. for a play-by-email game that you play over weeks is madness. I'll, I'll admit, in the game that we're <laughs> running right now, 
I just started making up what cards I draw and then like marked off. I haven't even exclusively been marking them off. I've been marking <laughs> off the uh, Major Arcana and then just a number of other cards. And then when I need to draw again, I just kind of look down the list and I'm like, yeah, that one. Yeah, um, totally. So, so, and then now I'm running one for a different group. And so, you know, I get to see all of those problems firsthand. So I think I'm just going to kill that, which also means that the game doesn't just end in the middle of who cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can have the ending just be when the goal happens, then it ends. Especially in the version that I'm running, which is much easier than the version that you're running. Yeah, the goals in my version are, are really <laughs> tough to deal with. Uh, the, our, the version that I'm currently running has very quickly become more of just kind of a um, tone exercise in emailing each other mm-hmm. than like, I, I as the, uh, the GM have kind of lost track of goals. Like, I, I know what players are going towards directly, but I have no idea how close anybody is to winning yeah. or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, these these ideas about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if... And then you just sit on that for this huge portion of design before realizing, actually, that's not very cool. It just sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mistakes. I, I've seen that a number of times. Uh, I played... Um, Undying back when it was a uh, diceful game and uh, it had a bit of that same thing where like in feedback we're kind of like yeah the I'm not sure about the dice and Paul Riddle just ran with it and was like actually yeah what if we got rid of the dice and now it's it's this beautiful asymmetric uh, bidding game that's wonderful um, oh, yeah so hard to do so hard to be like oh yeah this thing that I've just really wanted to hold on to and that seems so awesome at the time yeah, it's really not the right fit. Kill your darlings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that that is definitely a way of dealing with mistakes. Is like uh, admitting <laughs> them and moving on. Yes. Yeah, um, the the first thing that I had for handling mistakes was more about like mistakes in in play, more or less, um, and that's like expecting them and in, in uh, designing for them. Um, sure. So a great example of this, I think, is the approach of doing your first session of a new game as a pilot episode, mm-hmm. um, which Primetime Adventures is uh, more or less explicit about, and other games have to varying degrees. But the idea that your your first session, uh, by the end of that session, you may completely change your understanding of the game. Kind of like the pilots of a lot of TV shows. You like watch the pilot and you're like, why did people like this show? And then the show becomes what it actually is. Uh, sometimes, you know, with entire cast changes and stuff. Um, totally. Yeah, and it's starting, like we've started, we've got a burning wheel, not really a campaign, a burning wheel series of character creation sessions. <laughs> uh, and uh, after each one, it's like, oh, well, let's just shift the tone a little bit this way. Or, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to go down this path, which means that people should probably adjust us a little bit so that it makes more sense and you don't have a wasted belief or something. Mm-hmm. And let's let's just adjust this a little bit and this a little bit, and that'll be fine. And then uh, we're still working on actually getting to the play part. Yeah, that is the danger with this, that like if you embrace this too much, it um, you, you get stuck in this mode. Like There has to be uh, an expectation of... Yeah, we're gonna make some mistakes and we'll we'll move on past them. But they're the move on past them I think is an important part as well. And like I think pretty much any game that has a specialized first session mm-hmm. is doing some amount of this. Like uh the DCC funnel is actually Oh yeah. Pretty much a way of saying in your first session, make a lot of mistakes. Uh, and, and some of those mistakes are somewhat mechanically forced in that, like, your characters are likely to die even if you're doing the right thing. But uh, <laughs> The system will make your mistakes for you. The system will make your mistakes for you, but, like, the point being that you go through and you, uh, for the first session, it's kind of different than all the other sessions, and it lets you set things up and learn the system and make mistakes in this kind of safe environment. Mm-hmm. 
and then go on to play in the rest of the game. Um, and, you know, in some ways, Burning Wheel, uh, I'd, I'd almost be interested in this because it's wonderful that Burning Wheel's life path discussion is like a thing that we all talk about together as opposed to like a mini game that we play. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it means that you there's this upfront time when it's really painful to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. If you make a mistake during care gen, you're you're kind of stuck with it. You're kind of stuck with it. And like you uh, you know, this is a place where just kind of the table rule of a pilot episode can come in like mm-hmm. okay I'm just going to reburn my character everybody else keep yours the same and, and we'll keep on playing and whatever happened in that first session stands we'll just pretend that it happened with this character um, yeah most of the life path decisions like you can revote on traits so you can get something that you didn't realize how to get or or you'll end up gaining skills that you didn't have so that's fine and then beliefs are really easy to change so you're not super fixed into it but your entire history like it was built on you being a pirate, and then the system is like the game goes not that way. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Really, is the you've established this history for your character, and then you realize that that doesn't work. Um, like, so the thing that I always think of with pilot episodes is uh, the show New Girl, which started with a different actor and replaced him with somebody else, like acknowledged in the the fiction of the show, but playing a kind of similar character, like. Uh, one black guy replacing another black guy. Like, it was a really weird thing. But it, it actually became a pretty good show. Uh, and then they eventually brought back the guy that they had thrown out after the first the pilot episode. But it's just this, like, this idea that they tried the pilot episode, and for whatever reason, like, I've never looked into this. Maybe it was just a contract thing or whatever. That didn't stand. So they, you know, slotted somebody new into this and just kind of hung a lantern on it really quick and moved on and ended up with a good show. Uh, and I think that's kind of the the answer to that in Burning Wheel. Like, if you made the pirate and all of a sudden you realize that this is like a, a dinosaur game, unless you're playing the new magic set, uh, you, you go back and you say, okay, my character, they did all the same things, but I'm just going to rewrite their history really quick, do different life paths, and we'll, we'll just plug them back in. Right. And it, it works. Or you can even acknowledge it more in the fiction and, like... We left that person behind. Yeah, and here's his person. assistant or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, um... So yeah, that, that's my first thing. Like, expect mistakes and and design for them to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your second one? Okay, let's let's, let's right go to my second that. one. Uh, I actually like things that um, force mistakes or protect you from mistakes. Uh, so I'm thinking of here, uh, especially the kinds of mechanics that give your character a bit of a mind of their own. Um, Pendragon, great example. Uh, so Pendragon is a game of playing basically Arthurian knights, and you have these um, passions that you, at various times, to do something or not do something, you'll have to roll for or against. So you might be uh, honorable, and if you want to sneak around and stab somebody in the back, you actually have to roll against your own, uh, your your character's um, passion, basically. The, The fact that they are an honorable person they may not be willing to do that, uh, which is this interesting way of, um, in some ways, protecting you from mistakes, uh, in that for an Arthurian game, um, for Pendragon, they set these up with some starting values such that you kind of have to be a knight, and so that if you immediately try to go off the rails and play like a, a scoundrel, the game will push you back some into the thing the game does well. Um, so you can't 
as easily make certain mistakes. Um, and they also help you embrace mistakes. If you are, if the right thing to do would actually be to stab this person in the back, but you're so honorable, you have to go up and challenge them to a duel first. Uh, that is a mistake, and your character just forced you into making it. Right. Uh, and you see this with Burning Wheel, um, with beliefs in particular for making mistakes, and with instincts as a way to insulate you from mistakes. Uh, and I especially like instincts in a game like Torchbearer, where they they really become that protection from you making mistakes. If you you know if your character always uh, has their uh, torch and is in the lead or whatever, like if you, if you build in marching order or something there, there's a you've just given yourself a safety net of my character always does this even if I forget to say it, mm-hmm. um, which is a really fun way to. Uh, embrace mistakes and to prevent them in some ways. Um, yeah, and, and several other games do this with various types of drives and like flags and stuff to to make it so uh, you make the right mistakes, essentially. Sure, sure. Yeah. Because, you know, characters that don't make any mistakes are boring. Yes. Uh, and and we don't, we don't, you know, if, if we wanted to play kind of the perfect game, it would probably not end up being an RPG character because... That's just it's just not very interesting. You've got to have an arc. Yeah, you've got to have an arc. And uh, I would say that part of role playing games is having um, is being able to make sub or not actually being able to make entirely optimal decisions. Mm-hmm. Like if we get into a game where um, it's kind of the like solve for the best move given the available information with no other considerations, no like. Uh, if it's entirely an optimization game within the rules, then it's kind of going back towards that board game domain. Like there, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of crossover there in the like hardcore dungeon crawling. Your your character has no personality, but you still are solving with um, really incomplete information. You're you're solving in the way that like you would solve how to build a new countertop in your house or something. Like right. a really open ended domain. Whereas if it boils down to this like uh, the you know, how do I move over there and still get a full round attack? Mm-hmm. And these are all the constraints. Like, that starts to become more of a board game. And because there aren't mistakes, there are now really defined. Like, right. you can't, your mistakes are no longer uh, are provable almost. Right. Uh, and I, I think you that's. obviously did the wrong thing as yeah. opposed to, well, either of those could have been. The right choice, mm-hmm. yeah, and and you know you you gambled with incomplete information versus uh, you just didn't realize you took the wrong ability, you didn't realize that you could do this, or you know you prepared the wrong spell or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what gets people with with fourth edition some of the time, mm-hmm. uh, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, is that uh, the combat there could be very um, kind of solvable like that. Yeah. There was uh, this feeling that like you had to choose all the right things and. Uh, if you didn't do certain things, it was clearly a mistake. It was a fairly provable mistake. It's just like just like a WoW character build, right? Yeah. You, you don't pick this ability and this ability. They're not good together. You should be picking these two abilities. I don't care what your background story is. You're making an obviously suboptimal character. Uh-huh. Or like making a magic deck. Like you mm-hmm. can make some kind of like, I wanted to make a cat-themed deck, mm-hmm. uh, which now actually is pretty viable, but a, a few sets ago wouldn't have been. And like the... You can make that, but it's pretty clearly, like, and you know that you're not making a competitive deck. Like, mm-hmm. you know that you're just messing around. Um, whereas in D&D, like, if, if your plan is uh, 
doesn't maximize your attack bonus in in say mold bay mm-hmm. like that could still be a totally reasonable plan and the or the mistake you made you know if we go down this hallway instead of that one that's a entirely reasonable in character mistake and it's really tough to prove from the information we had that we made a mistake like we might have chosen wrong but we didn't like uh choose wrong based on not understanding the situation or not computing something right or making a bad a bad choice with complete knowledge instead we made a the best choice we could with the knowledge we had and it turned out to be wrong well I've got two things on that so sure so thing number one the do I take left or right on the hallway I know that's just arbitrary example mm-hmm. uh, I hate those where there's actually no <laughs> evidence yeah like uh, when I do burning wheel prep I look at everybody's beliefs and say what various situations can I put these people in that hits as many beliefs in conflicting ways as I possibly can mm-hmm. so that you know what the two the upsides and downsides of both sides are and you know how bad it's going to be when you pick either one mm-hmm. you know all of this horrible stuff and it's always going to be horrible and you still have to make the choice sure right? uh, and then thing number two uh, Jason Morningstar was on Ludology one of the podcasts I listened to mm-hmm. uh, Morningstar the person behind Night Witches and Fiasco and, and many other awesome things uh, and he was talking about you know Ludology is more of a kind of a board game design podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the hosts is uh, has played stuff like coin games and war games, and but designs euro games. And the other host is basically entirely euro games and has played one or two role playing games. So Jason Morningstar gets on the cast, and they're talking. They keep using the term uh, story games, and it bothers him a lot. And yep. so at one point he says, you know, these really good games that I like to design and, and games that I like to play are difficult decision machines, mm-hmm. and they just generate these hard decisions over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And they're not hard decisions like in a board game where you say, how can I math out my optimal path? They're hard decisions like, well, do I make the trolley run over this person or this person type of thing. Yeah. Um, and you just, you know everything. You So, which is the big difference between kind of these really interesting role-playing games and and a, a good board game. Like, a good board game is, here's all the math, and the the optimal decision probably either hides behind probability or another player's action or some other hidden information. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a good role-playing game, nothing is hiding what the outcome is going to be. You, you, know, you know that this is going to be... It might be a little less bad based on how the dice go. Sure. Or it might be a little less good based on how the dice go. But the real decision you're making is not, how can I get the optimal probability on my die? The decision that you're making is, which one of these pieces of fiction do I want to head down? Uh, yeah, I think to, to a point. I think there's there's still room there for the um, the like hardcore dungeon survival games, which sure. are uh, they are about maximizing your odds of survival, but they're about doing it in a way that is less clearly, uh, you know, I got the maximum attack bonus here. Mm-hmm. They're they're about optimizing the situation and like um, a survival. You know, what what do we think our best option is here? When the math is not a clear, you know, if we go this way, we have a ten percent, and if we go this way, we have a twenty percent chance of living. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to the like the arbitrary unmarked hallways, which is kind of an anti-pattern to begin with, I think part of the reason that it's an anti-pattern is because it's impossible to make a mistake there. Right. There is no context that tells you that either one of these is better or worse. Uh, and so it's not into the like provable mistakes where like one says, 
free treasure, yes, for real, I'm not lying. And one <laughs> says certain death, yes, for real, I'm not lying. And, like, you choose the wrong one and you certainly die. Uh, whereas flipping a coin, there there's no... It's right not a learnable either. mistake. Yeah, it's not a learnable. Well, I mean, it's not even. Is, isn't a mistake if you have no information and you happen to choose the wrong one? That's just bad luck. That's philosophy. So, uh, <laughs> well, so you you raised the trolley problem. Yeah, so well, we're we're going down that road. <laughs> so Who, Raf, which road? Raf Coster wrote this book. Uh, oh gosh, I can't even remember what it's called. Um, the Theory of Fun, I think, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how most of the fun in games is going through this loop of trying something in a safe environment and then learning from what happened based on what you tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anything that you try where you can't actually learn anything from that thing becomes less and less fun over time. Mm-hmm. And this goes into like Csikszentmihalyi's flow concept, and this goes into all the stuff where if the difficulty is too low, then you're not actually learning something from the things that you're trying. Mm-hmm. And if the difficulty is too high, then what you try, the th- actually learning something out of that is just way too difficult, so you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh man, so so playing, you know, that's that's another reason that the that the two things. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would say it's not a mistake uh, because terminology is super complicated and very vague, but it's certainly not a fun. I would super argue that's not a mistake because your none of your actions there, based on any knowledge you could have had, was sure. wrong. Sure. I mean, you 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 didn't do anything wrong. If you come to the T and you know you listen and you search and you ask the captive you took and you try and scout and the GM just keeps on saying no no no, no there's, there's no difference there's no difference there's absolutely no difference you detect magic you you talk to the gods everything and like it is literally just an a two AT and you have to get to flipping the coin, you have not made a mistake. No matter which one was the right one, I I think that worst chance you or worst case and you you know, one of them is the mouth of a dragon and the other one's free treasure, uh, you've just been unlucky because you had no other way of making that decision. Which yes, I agree is philosophy, but I think it's important because we're there's things that are so easy that you can't learn from them, and then there's things where you had no meaningful input, so you mm-hmm. can't learn from them. And yeah. that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. If totally. you have no input into it, you didn't make a learnable mistake. Right. You just happened to flip the coin and get tails. Yeah, totally. So what's your second? Uh, trying to make everybody happy. And this is both a design problem and also like a DMing problem and a general group problem and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And a player problem, I'd say. Yeah, because yeah, you can't... You will never be able to make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. And and I think that trying to make sure you make everybody the least sad is a losing proposition. Um, what is it? Mark Rosewater, uh, lead designer of Magic, says that... It says because you know he's been working on that game forever, and it's kind of a successful game, so mm-hmm. I tend to trust him when he talks about game design most of the time. Um, but he says that the mechanics that see the most love in magic are also most often the ones that see the most hate. Huh. So because if you make something that one person is is right in the middle of one person's kind of fun, that mm-hmm. they're just all about, somebody else is going to be like, well, why would you play that? That's not even tournament capable or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to be like, well, why would you play that? There's no challenge in using that. It's obviously too good or whatever. Mm-hmm. And... Same kind of thing when you're designing a game or when you're deeming a game and you're trying to make something that's just kind of inoffensive to mm-hmm. everybody uh, and it'll just end up being kind of bland. And 
that's really interesting from from Mark Rosewater because I feel like from from my reading of his uh, design retrospective, sometimes there are things that he points to as really big successes that pretty much everybody seemed to love. The, um, but but there's still there also so he what he does is he'll do the five point surveys. Yeah. And those are the ones where the majority of people liked it uh-huh. and a couple of people really liked it and then a couple of people hated it. Okay. So and, like it, it's hard to get a lot of people to the really loving it. Uh, without also getting a couple of people to the really hating it. Sure. And you know he'll he'll talk about mechanics where Almost everybody is at least a three or mm-hmm. a four, and there's nobody that really hates it or really loves it. And he says that those mechanics are forgettable, and nobody really cares. Yeah, it's like yeah, you've made you've made a system where nobody really hates it. Congratulations, everybody will forget your game next week. That's really interesting. I've I've just been playing uh, a sealed league for the new Ixalan. Ixalan set. Yeah. yeah, and there's. Uh, I'm now thinking through the mechanics in the set in that kind of way. And uh, so, for example, there, there's one mechanic in the set where a lot of cards um, create treasure tokens, where treasure, it's a there's artifact a Pirates token. Pirates and Dinosaurs Insano set. Uh, and Conquistadors. <laughs> like, that's the part that I think gets lost there. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, but the, oh, I've got to return to that because I've got an interest, sure. uh, some interesting on problems the, with that. On the list. But uh, the... The thing there, there's this mechanic where a lot of the pirates create treasure tokens, treasure tokens, and artifact token that you can tap and sack for any color of mana. And I find that really kind of boring. Like, it's it's not that interesting of a mechanic to me. Like, I, I get the pirate theme, and it's, it's, it's a pretty useful mechanic, but I'm definitely in that three range on it. Like, mm-hmm. it's certainly playable. I see how it's useful, but it doesn't excite me, whereas some of the other mechanics in the set are totally cool and interesting to me. Like, uh, a lot of the dinosaurs, or some of the dinosaurs have Enrage, where when they take damage, things happen, mm-hmm. including uh, I'm my deck right now has a dinosaur that has Flash. It comes in instantly, so you can play it as a surprise blocker, and it has Enrage, <laughs> so when it takes damage, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. Nice. Uh, so you can really trap someone into the, you know, they attack in, and then you flash in your surprise 4-4 four, four to block their 3-3, three, three, and it becomes a 5-5 five, five after combat, which is just... Feels so great, and they um, hate that. Yeah, they hate that, and I'm sure that there's some people who, like, even from a design and play perspective, feel like that mechanic is is no good uh, for whatever reason. So yeah, like that that actually resonates a lot. That's why it's why counter spells are still in magic sets. Yeah, like uh, there are a lot of people that hate counter spells, mm-hmm. but there's a a very <laughs> a serious group of people who think it's the best thing ever. Yeah, and so they keep it because you don't want to lose those players, right? Yep. And the players that don't like counterspells, they'll still play the game because hopefully there's something else in there that they like. Yeah. The players that really like counterspells, if you drop them, they're gonna be like, "This game sucks," and just leave. Yep. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in my my back in high school when I started playing Magic, the people that I played with, counterspells were a big deal. And that, I guess that was partially also the design at the time. They were a bigger it was deal. Better. Yeah. But uh, these days I look at them and like you're. I mean, sometimes you get a big play out of a counterspell, but generally you're losing card advantage. Like you're you're trading a card for a card. And you're getting nothing else out of that, which is not always the best trade. Does it appeal to your spike nature? Uh, okay, sure. I'll, I'll go with that. But I, I think there's... Uh, yeah, it's interesting that they're still around. The one that I wanted to return with, with uh, Ixalan in this set, is that it's there's an interesting, um, I think, design mistake there in the way that they've uh, done the theme of the set. So the theme of the set is kind of a like Mesoamerica with pirates and vampire conquistadors coming to it, and it's the conflict between um, 
the natives and these conquerors, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the, I mean, both sides are, are presented as powerful and interesting. Like, there's not, it's not the kind of like you're playing as the invaders and everything else is backdrop thing. But uh, one of the themes of the set are these um, two sided cards where the card becomes land. Uh, and it starts as something else, and it's this like quest for land thing, um, which is slightly uncomfortable. Like the the taking of land from native peoples as kind of a it's not a core mechanic. There's only a few of these, and I think they're all at rare or higher. But it 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 bothers me a little bit that this is like something that they t- represented mechanically in this way. Um, that you know the the coming in and taking of well, and especially because it's presented as discovering. It's not taking land from somebody who already has it. It's, oh, I did this thing, and so now my artifact turns into a land, and I have this cool land. I've found, you know, they're going with kind of the lost, you know, cities of gold or whatever. Sure. Uh, but it it bothers me that, that's, that they took that resonant uh, element of the mythology there and presented it so uncritically. Um, well, I don't know. So... So vampire conquistadors, vampires are definitely the bad guys in magic. And they certainly could have gone with human conquistadors, non-vampire, and been like, yeah, everybody's fine. We're just going to have a great old time in conquistador Disneyland. Um, and so they're, they're saying that this is the bad guys. And then the Aztec civilization was ancient, right? It had existed for a long time. And so they could have lost cities. They could all be found. Maybe nobody was there. Okay. I mean, so I think a couple of problems there. The mm-hmm. the vampires are presented somewhat more positively. Um, because so, they know that people like to play bad guys. Well, yeah. Okay. Know, know that the vampires are the bad guys. I mean, because the vampires are the bad guys in magic. The vampires are split between white and black. Like they're, they're White is not the good color. I know, but white has a, a strong association with being the good guys in a lot of other sets. Sure. Um, anyway, and then uh, the the idea that, like, I, I think your perspective on ancient civilizations that could have lost some of their own stuff is is valid, but it still feels um, it still feels iffy. Like yeah. I, I can see the entire thing. Definitely feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. Anyway, we are... Wi- uh, like, I, I <laughs> Whatever. Managed, I this managed is, to work it in as a mistake. This but. is still super on topic. Like, <laughs> um, uh, There's also the trying to please everyone in your group as a DM or as a co-player, yeah. where you have a group where there's somebody who's like, I just want to get to the combat and play this cool tactical puzzle, and you have a couple of people who are like, oh yeah, I just want to see how these relationships turn out, and trying to make one thing appeal to everybody in a group like that is just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And you just have to pick and choose. And I'm not saying that you say, oh, yeah, a person who wants to do combat, we're going to ignore you entirely and just play this relationship game forever. Um, but you probably don't. It will be very difficult for you to make everybody happy at the same time. And I'm yeah. saying at some point you have to say that that is okay. Yeah. And that sometimes people aren't going to be happy. And that's all right. I think RPGs are, are particularly notorious for this, for their kind of you-can-do-anything uh, pitch that especially, especially like the 90s, 2000s, you know, this is a game that does everything. And so you, you come into that and you play for everything, too. And you say, oh, yeah, we're going to do, uh, you know, our group's going to have the 
the street level uh, thief, the uh, high noble who leads one of the great houses, the uh, magician pirate who's just sailing through, and we're we're gonna all play this game together, and like we're we're all gonna do all those things. I'm gonna go off pirating, and you're gonna go and uh, you know rob the store down the street, and the noble is gonna work out a truce with the next country, and. and it, yeah. You're not playing one game. You're not anymore. playing one game. And yeah. you're not pleasing... You're pleasing one person at a time, barely. Like, they're... I think the interesting flip side, I agree, you can't please everyone, but sometimes that turns into this, like, well, I don't have to worry about pleasing more than one person at once. Sure. Like, as you mentioned with beliefs, like, you look for these places where uh, things can be interesting for multiple people in multiple ways, and you tie them together, and, like, you, you find the places where they meet up. Uh, you don't completely write off as like, well, I'm just going to go around the table and say one cool thing to each person. Mm-hmm. Instead, you form this uh, this way of having some fun with everyone. Yeah, I feel like I feel like this also goes into your kind of issue with uh, generic games too. Yeah, because they're kind of a well, we'll just toss everything in and you pick the things that you like and go for it. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, actually, more focus would probably make this way better for those three and a fa- three and a halfs. And maybe make it a little bit worse for the threes, but uh, I mean, what are you gonna do, right? You'd rather have somebody love your game than everybody kind of like it. Yeah, uh, that's something that I think I've learned over time with Dungeon World. Uh, there's there's definitely been people who have not liked it, and I think I'm much happier with that than everybody thinking it's just okay. Um, yeah. Like a game that really resonates for some people and others absolutely hate uh, is probably a more successful game in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and it's it's okay to not like a game and it's it's that is totally fine. You can find some other game that you like better. That doesn't mean like that's the hard part about reviewing this kind of stuff too is just because you didn't like it, can you find if it do you think anybody would like it? Can mm-hmm. you find, you know, can you find something that is where you don't like it and I know that I like that stuff? So I can find my way into it. Well, and I, I think that's something that our discussions, our discussions here, hopefully, play into this kind of review of um, we're, we're clearly reviewing from the things that we know and from our view, and hopefully, we're communicating where we're coming from and why we feel these things uh, because they're they're not by any means universal views. It's like I don't know. I I liked the book Infinite Jest, and you don't have to. Um, the the idea of a review having to be this. Uh, appraisal of how good a thing actually is in an absolute sense yeah. versus, you know, this this reviewer, I've read their other things and I don't know where they're coming from or, you know, they wrote this review so thoroughly that they've explained where they're coming from on it. Um, it's been interesting to see this with a video game Cuphead that came out recently which is, um, I, I haven't played it yet, fairly difficult, quite difficult, like the, the reports I've heard vary somewhat but the, the reviews of it and where people are coming from, and uh, it gets back into um, ethics and game journalism, unfortunately. <laughs> oh uh, and, uh, you know, are, if my review doesn't line up with your opinions, is my review wrong? Am I biased? You know, it, a lot of the discussion, I feel like, is uh, kind of backwards. It, it, any other, you know, if a, a book came out and there were differing reviews of it, we would not really bat an eye. You know, if a movie came out and some people panned it and other people loved it, like, Part of the course. That's hard. There's there's this team thing going on too. Like I listen to uh, gamers with jobs who I really really enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, and they were talking about Heat Signature on their recent episode, uh-huh. which is one of my favorite video games right now. It's pretty insane. I might actually finish it, which does not happen very often to anything. 
And they were talking about it like, yeah, you know, it's kind of a thing, and you can play it for a while, and you probably won't like it as much as FTL. And I was like, I like Heat Signature way more than FTL. <laughs> like, I, I haven't made it through one FTL campaign because it just it feels so samey from time to time. But Heat Signature, I'm got to be 12 hours, 20 hours in. It's something insane. Anyways, so so I'm listening to this, and my visceral, immediate opinion is like, what are you talking? I'm going to email, and oh, my gosh. And then I realized, well, the guy talking, who's the only person on the show that has actually played it, he doesn't like games like Heat Signature. Mm -hmm. He likes games that are... You know, I can make my optimal long-term strategic move, and I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to play this game through hardcore, like all this, all this stuff that Heat and Signature does that I really like. That I can totally see this guy not liking. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh well, that's fine. I hope somebody else on the cast gives it a chance because I think it's really cool. Um, and it's like, it, but that immediate visceral response of. What is wrong with you for not liking this game? I can totally understand. You know, yeah. that's that's just really hard. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and go to my third one. Do it. Um, I think that uh, mistakes should, like, we should enhance mistakes. We should make the most of them. We should actually aim for mistakes, uh, even in play. Um, so, so okay. My thought here: uh, if you're not making mistakes, you're not doing something interesting, which we've we've kind of covered in in kind of trivial cases, like flipping sure. a coin at a T in a dungeon. Um, but I would even say in, in bigger senses, like this is something that um, we talk about uh, some in our, our day jobs. Like if you're setting goals that you are always reaching, you're probably not setting your goals high enough because you're you're not challenging yourself. I um, mean, it's a bit like mouse guard advancement. If you're always making all your roles, you're not doing hard enough things. Um, and I think that comes down to, to judgment as well. Like if you're always putting uh, your players in situations or you're always getting yourself into situations where you always can not make a mistake, uh, then you're not doing something very interesting. Uh, and it, it's the tough decision thing that you were mentioning from Jason Morningstar. If you're not putting people in tough decisions where they can make the wrong decision, where they can make a mistake, then you're you're not really playing much of a game. And even in the more solvable sense of board games where you, you know can consider all the hidden information and probabilities and know, like, this is my best move mathematically, um, you still have to be able to screw up those computations. Like, mm -hmm. if it's always clear that the best move is to to start with an X in the center of the tic-tac-toe board, then you're you're not doing anything interesting. Um, One of the solutions that we came up for for the racing game where you ran into the edge mm -hmm. was, oh, well, we'll just let ships sit on top of each other. Uh, so this is a kind of a programmed movement game, mm -hmm. and one of the big things in those games is your move pushing somebody else yeah. so that your mistake was basically forced. Mm -hmm. uh, you knew that there was a chance, because in this game you're only programming one move ahead, so yeah. you knew that there was a chance they could push you, but you didn't plan for it, and now you're pushed off, and now you, two of your moves are screwed up, and whatever. And so we talked about this kind of idea that, oh, well, how about you can just coexist in the same space and there's no pushing and that solves this rule problem. And it's like, well, but that also cause it means that there's no fun for, oh, I'm, I'm slightly off course now and now I'm going to hit this lane instead of that lane, mm -hmm. which means I'm going to get the uh, push me back or then I'll get the glitch or then I'll get this. And so you lose all those moments that w are fun about that mistake. 
Yeah. If you make it so that you can't make that mistake. And, and you've taken the chance to learn about that mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that an important element of, the, element of this is accepting people who make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah, something totally. else that uh, I think we talk about a lot in our, our day jobs is um, the idea that like making a mistake is is a thing that's, that can be learned from. There was a story that went around a while ago through Reddit of some guy who started a new company and was doing their like new employee training that said, you know, run these commands on these things. And because he had a typo in one of the commands, he accidentally deleted their production data and got fired for it. And uh, the response that I had and several other people I know who work here did uh, was something along the lines of, like, that is not that person's mistake. Like, if your system isn't hardened enough that a new employee can accidentally delete your, your data, that is your problem, not the new guy's problem. Uh, the new guy didn't know what he was doing, and the fact that a simple mistake could cause this is is not his fault um and like in some ways making that mistake if i i would like to think that if i was working with somebody to get out of the work context if i was designing an rpg with somebody and uh they came back with a first draft that was like completely broken uh and we iterated on it and learned from it like that is actually a useful thing yeah yeah like the if even if that first draft uh had some kind of horrible impact somehow like it it we lost playtesters because it was so horrible to play um they still had a the the important thing is how you handle that and how you learn from it Mm -hmm. not did you make a mistake because everybody's going to make mistakes so i think it's really important to have that culture of uh you know if somebody even in your horrible hardcore dungeon survival tomb of horrors game Mm -hmm. uh you if somebody make sticks their hands into the damn portal even though you told them not to like it's it's important to embrace the uh we can make mistakes and we can learn from it especially in the context of games because it's just a game yeah there's a there's a really nice thing about so playing heat signature talking about this game uh one of the things i really like about it is that you effectively have you have more than one character. So if one of your characters gets captured or dies or whatever, you go back and you can play another character, and it's all right. You haven't lost effectively any progress. Mm -hmm. You haven't lost anything that you can't just immediately get again. There's no experience that you're gaining over time. It's, It's, you know, you're playing these little puzzles, and, oh, I failed this puzzle. And most of the time in these kind of puzzle games, like in FTL, if I get to the point where I am certainly losing this game, I'll just drop it, which is yep. why I've never finished the FTL end, because it's just a pain. Yep. In Heat Signature, I'll get to the point where, oh man, this ship is going to toss me out the airlock, and I'm going to hit the alarm, and all this badness is going to happen. I don't drop it, because it's like, well, there's a chance I could finish the mission, or there's a chance I could get to the pilot and take him out. There's a chance this could happen in time. And if I didn't get that, well, I'll just play a different character, and yep. that'll be fine. Like, the punishment is so tiny that I'm okay making all of these potential mistakes. I'm okay continuing past the point where, like, there's this classic Idris StarCraft game where he's playing in somebody and he sees this huge army and he just immediately GGs and drops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that whole army was hallucinated. But he didn't realize, because people weren't using hallucinations to you know, to uh-huh. try and head fake people, because it was t- tended to be a waste of energy, because you could do much better things at the time. But he just was like, whatever, I'm so far behind, I'm just done, because yeah. I don't, I'm not going to waste another half an hour playing this game, I'm going to yep. save my energy. And it's like, but if you had played, because the punishment wasn't so big, 
you could have won that game. Like, and there's a bunch of times in this in Heat Signature where, oh well, it's gonna be really close, and I go for it, and I just barely get to the pilot on time to cut off the alarm, or mm-hmm. I just barely, you know, I get to the person I'm supposed to get, and then some great confluence of events happens, and one of the bad guys shoots out the window for me, which shunts us both out, and then I catch us with like the amazing things happened because of the mistake that I made. So my understanding from reading a review, <clears throat> I, I haven't played Heat Signature yet, but geez, you're selling me hard on it. Oh, it's so um, good. The, when your character dies, you you lose the equipment they had, though. Yeah, Like, I sure. heard that was... A, the, the review made that sound like a fairly large setback. That it was really annoying to have, like, the loadout you really liked die and if then you, be back to scratch. If you have a loadout... The, you shouldn't get to the point of having a loadout that is what you're depending on. Okay. It's my personal opinion of the game. Okay. The, the way I explained it to, to Sydney, my partner, is uh, you basically are starting each puzzle with some vague information about the, the obstacles in your way, kind of the, the guards and kind of the boss guards and what you're going to be trying to do and how long the alarm's going to take. You have some kind of vague information, how big the ship is, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And you have a shop... And as you unlock new locations, more stuff shows up in the shop. So you can customize your loadout a little bit, uh, but your person starts with a couple of items, and you can pick up items on the ship, which Mm -hmm. is super important. Mm -hmm. So you basically are going into this puzzle with a very small number of tools, some of which you might be able to choose, and some small idea of, okay, here's going to be my strategy for attacking this game. And as long as you don't get seen, the alarm is not going to go off. Mm-hmm. I, I hate playing the full-on timed missions. Uh, I'll do it sometimes because it feels like it's doable, but I hate <laughs> it's, it's just really hard. So, so if you lose a person in all of their items, I mean, you might have lost an item that is going to be a really hard one to find again, but... <sighs> I mean, it's it's one tool in your in your toolbox, and almost all of the items are tools that are easy enough to find. Like, if I lost one that was self-charging, I think I would be more frustrated than anything, but I haven't even found those items yet. Well, now I'm really upset uh, that I didn't get the game earlier, because if, uh, I heard during the first week you could find the everything gun, and Josh, it'll never Josh, be available again. Josh tells me that he thinks that it will become available because enough people complained that exclusives suck. Mm-hmm. And by the way, exclusives suck. If you are going to run anything like this, please don't make something exclusive. Yes, uh, you're saying that to the guy who did hardcovers only for the Dungeon World Kickstarter. I mean, aren't still... you sad about this? I mean, uh, I'm not going to go back on it because like... You, we... you said something. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But um, I think like John Harper's approach to Blades with like a a limited edition that is very limited, um, but it is still it is like just an upgraded hardcover. Like I had no idea hardcovers meant so much to people. I, in some ways, actually prefer the soft cover version. But anyway, the uh, like, uh, yeah, like pre- having a slightly premium one. Or, I mean, in some ways, it's a bigger jump in in quality, but like it's still it's the same content. It's the same content, which which is the same of Dungeon World. But like the covers matter to people, right. especially for role playing games for for. Long-term longevity, yeah. yeah. Um, I, on the other hand, generally am, am soft enough on my books that I like books that uh, are soft covers because they're easier to like haul around and to uh, like read in more context and stuff. Oh, hardcover, right. non-hardcover is less of a big deal to me than like uh, when uh, uh, Cool Mini or Not put out Blood Rage. There's a faction that you just can't get. And so on eBay, they're selling it for $600 because there are people who will pay that much because they missed the Kickstarter. And it's like, 
Well, part of me is just always going to kind of itch a little bit because I don't have the one thing that would make that collection complete. Yep. And because of that, I want to play the game a little bit less. Mm -hmm. And that's just sad, right? That's actually happening to me right now with Heat Signature. Like, in some ways, if I would have had the chance to, because uh, I've been really to busy. To play if the, I would have, everything gun. Yeah, if I would have bought it right when it came out and knew that for a week I could play enough to, to have a chance of hitting it, like, I, that probably would have been cool. But now that I can't, uh, like, I think probably the solution here for, for Heat Signature is to do something very similar to the everything gun, but um, just slightly different in some way. I think like, they're actually going to just keep it available. Yeah. Um, I, I mean... It's a tor it's a terrible gun. I've never yeah. actually used it. I've never I got it because it was a cool little mission to do, but yeah. So Anyways. so yeah, the everything gun, just for context here, uh only available during the first week. You could find it on ships. Uh, and on it, one ship. One ship. Oh, I didn't know that part. Uh, it's a gun that picks up everything nearby and then fires it all at once, uh, which means that things you can pick up, like other guns, can go off when they hit the wall. So you, you basically, it's a chaos gun. Like, you pick up everything in a room, shoot it into another room, and that room just goes wild. Um, it's, 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 it's horrible. Yeah, but it's like I love chaos stuff I know, like that. But it's it's it, the it, worst idea. So like, <laughs> uh, we we play a lot of Towerfall, and we deliberately yeah. keep on like infinite lasers and infinite drills, and like love the high chaos levels. Um, yeah, okay. We haven't talked about your third one, and we should because we're we're running uh, timing, long. Timing is fun. Uh, I I think I'm having a big mistake with forgetting that I can actually also be one of the people that's having fun mm -hmm. in games, like uh, especially when I'm facilitating or GMing. I forget that part of this game experience is mine, and mm -hmm. I'm allowed to do things that are really fun for me to do. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Dream and Darkness game that I'm running, I'm like, well, I could do all of this work, or I could make this player do some of this work, and make this player do some of this work. Uh, my friend Ken's running Tomb of Annihilation, uh, because none of his group listens to this, but he, I know he does. Mm -hmm. uh, he's running Tomb of Annihilation and doing a huge amount of work as the DM, because it's like one of his first major campaigns. Uh -huh. And I'm like, dude, you're going to burn yourself out if you are writing all of the session reports and you are doing all of the only available to you prep and you are doing all the hosting and you're doing all of the... It's oh, like, you can't do it. Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, so I, I, I have a nitpick with this. I haven't run it yet, so I, I have to to caveat this, because I know sure. Adam Kowal has run it and is saying great things about it, so I, I'm probably wrong here, but the pitch that they first hit me with of basically, we took Tomb of Horrors and wrapped it up in a whole bunch of stuff around it is the exact wrong way to sell me on it. It's like, wait, wait, you took this wonderful contained killer dungeon and then gave me dinosaur racing around it? Like, Why would I go to the dungeon? Yeah, well, no, why would I dinosaur race? Like, for me personally, <laughs> like, this is this is, uh, like, a classic hardcore killer dungeon that has been reinterpreted several times. It, it has iconic things in it. It has lots of fun uh, fun, okay, for various senses of fun. <laughs> uh, like, devious things that you have to, to um, like, pixel, pixel work your way through. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and telling me, like, first you get to go to a port town where there are rival factions and dinosaur racing is not the way to get me excited about that. I want to say, like, okay, so you're at the entrance to the Tomb of Horrors slash Annihilation. Good, Good luck. luck. Yeah. yeah you uh, want to speedrun it. I mean, I don't necessarily want to speedrun it because I think that it is the kind of adventure where you have to be real careful. Like, not speedrun in the, like, how quickly can I make, th make you, it through you the You want dungeon. to play the optimal run 
through a dungeon that you've never seen before that is full of deadly, horrible things. Pretty much, yeah. I, yeah. I want to have a really tough time surviving in a uh, tough dungeon, especially one that has a history behind a history of like player stuff behind it, not totally. like a, an in-fiction history. I don't care as much about that. Whereas, um, whereas Ken's group, he was like, well, I need to get this NPC out of the way, so I'm going to say that a dinosaur fell into the water and he had to go help them. Yeah. And his group was like, a dinosaur fell into the water? Well, we're immediately going to go that way. And Ken's like, oh, man, all of the stuff that I thought you were going to do mm-hmm. and my throwaway line and now all of this is gone. And that's the exact kind of stuff that I, I am you'd be, not you'd be super like, interested Screw it, in. Let's go to the dungeon. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess I could see doing a Blades in the Dark style game of, like, the this port city with dinosaurs and trading and rival families and stuff. Like, okay, But then why sure. would you ever go to the dungeon? Exactly. Why would you ever go to the dungeon? And so, like, they, they've kind of addressed this with, sure. like, a uh, there is like a kind of timer on the adventure um, that that helps drive you that way, but it feels so. It, it, the setup is like everybody who has ever been uh, resurrected or undead or whatever is like dying again because of something going on in this tomb, and so it's you know you better get there before all the undead, like before the healthcare crisis hits, <laughs> um, and. Yeah, um, like it, it just seems kind of arbitrarily layered on top. Like there, there's this obvious tension between we built this city that you can adventure in and do city stuff in, and then there's the dungeon. And the way that they pasted those together was just like, uh, you can't spend too much longer in the city. Like I know you're enjoying it, but mm, look at that clock. Yeah, um, yeah. Which Let's, yeah, it's. It, but I know people who've played it and really liked it, so I'm probably wrong about it. Well, I mean, you're allowed to be in that downside group if if there are people in the upside group. Right? Sure, but I I haven't played it. That's sure. why. Thing. Like th- this is my reaction to the pitch uh, yeah. because they I was kind of excited about it mm-hmm. uh, because I love reinterpreting old stuff. So I've I've played through Tomb of Horrors, reinterpreted through Dungeon Crawl Classics and the Goonies and 80s pop culture, which was fantastic. I loved it, and it literally started with us. We were the Goonies. We, we were higher level DCC characters with like other random people from school that we had grabbed who were nice. zero level characters, and we started with. Um, Oh, like a Zork reference, or like we—it it was on this island. Uh, oh, I'm in the wrong notebook. Otherwise, I'd actually flip back to my notes. Um, but it, it was one of you started basically at pretty much the entrance of the dungeon. There was a little bit of like you're in a natural setting where you know the entrance must be closed, and then uh, because it was for a group of people at uh, New Mexicon and the, the guy running it was pretty sure people would be aware of Tomb of Horrors he had like inverted little things so um, just mess it up just a little bit yeah so like there was uh, a instead of the um, mouth the, this is like a, a famous thing from Tomb of Horrors it's also been in the Tomb of Annihilation like promo art there's this mouth fairly early on carved into the the walls and uh, the classic thing, spoilers, uh, is for somebody to say, I reach my arm in there to... Spoilers for a 40-year-old adventure? Uh, yeah, but 30-year-old how adventure? many people have played it? Uh, well, and also it appears to me in Tomb of Annihilation uh, in Tomb of Horrors, at least, you stick your arm in, there's a, a sphere of annihilation in there, if I remember correctly. Something that chews off your arm magically. Um, so, you know, the first thing, because this is really early on, you stick your arm in and are now da- down an arm, like, welcome to the dungeon. Yeah. Um, so he he had messed with this, and it was uh, a TV turned to static. Nice. And it was um, actually a reference to Poltergeist. And it turns out that in this case, it was actually a good... If we would have like reached through there, there was like a helpful ghost or something. He let us know later. Um, yeah, there was... Uh, oh, man, the a reference to... Um, 
Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where this throwaway line about the sausage king of Chicago, Abe Froman, he was a golem made of sausages. Um, there was a magical speaking spell. It was it was fantastic, and it was super killer. We all died. Um, anyway, that is the way you sell me on uh, Tomb of uh, Tomb of Horrors remake, uh, even without the '80s references and Goonies stuff, which I admit totally down my alley but like telling me that it's it's going to be a remix of Tomb of Horrors and you're just going to get right into the adventure and good it's luck it's going to be challenging is a way better sales pitch for me than we put dinosaurs around it um, yeah okay <laughs> rant over I, I, I've gone lies. off on that lies um, it's going to continue later uh, but yeah so making sure that that in the middle of this entire system that I'm allowed to also have fun kind of running it, I'm allowed to also have fun and make other people do work yeah. and make other people come up with stuff, which is also my favorite part about role-playing games in general, like you know, this Dreams in Darkness game where I'm getting people that I've barely played any role-playing games with. I'm like, hey, tell me about this relic that you don't have but somebody else does and I need to know what to tell them mm-hmm. because I don't want to have to come up with all this stuff. I'm going to make you do it all. Yep. And then I get these huge, like, three gigantic paragraph responses from people that are amazing. Yeah. That, that is a fun thing about Dreams and Darkness and play-by-mail in general is that um, the things that at the table somebody explaining could get a little long-winded, uh, you know, three paragraphs, that's an easy read. Like, yeah. that's not a big deal. Uh, whereas at the table, if somebody started giving me that much history on it. Um, so, yeah, in <laughs> sure. our Dreams and Darkness, you haven't seen other people's orders yet, but uh, our friend Mike... He started out with some some top notch writing in his orders, Mike and, is and since then the the <laughs> turns have gotten a little shorter, and my questions have gotten more direct. And I need to learn a little bit more about running the game, to be honest. But um, his initial thing, he uh, his cultist asked him, um, "How do I, I think it was kill this person?" And I was expecting to you know, like uh, go here to ask about them, and then go stab him in the back or something. He was like, "Oh, go to this place, cut down." Uh, a certain kind of tree, bathe it in blood and light it on fire, and it'll turn <laughs> so into a spear. Amazing. And then you, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's great to to see people embrace that stuff in a way that um, at the table would be tougher to come up with, and then tougher to just communicate effectively. Yeah, because there's no editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play by email, not a mistake for sure. Yeah. Um, oh man. So many more mistakes. One mistake would be going way over time, I think. Yeah, uh, so we, we should recap. Mm-hmm. Um, my my three ways to handle mistakes aimed more at like mistakes in play is to um, have some kind of like introductory pilot episode where you expect that we're going to have to do some retcons afterwards. Um, to create characters that prompt or save you from mistakes, depending on what kinds of mistakes you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to embrace mistakes, to say, like, we're we're all people, we're going to make mistakes, mistakes are cool, uh, especially if we learn from them and get better about them. And even if those mistakes are, like, interpersonal things or play style things, like, let's let's make our mistakes, let's learn from them, and let's keep going. Yeah, mine are, are getting too married to kind of your mechanisms, your darlings, uh, trying to make everybody happy and uh, forgetting that I'm also allowed to be happy when I'm running these kind of things. You're, you're allowed to be happy, Adam. Oh, good. So that's it for our 27th question, Mistakes. Another question is Adam Blinkensop and Sage Latora. You can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast or by searching for Another Question on Google Plus or Facebook. Our website, anotherquestion.com, has all our old episodes plus links to all of the games we mention in each episode and other bonus material. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a question, leave us a t- review on iTunes, or share this episode. Thanks.